Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. So we've got a little bit of something for everyone in this April sitting, which features more than four arguments, um, kind of a change of pace for the Supreme Court, doing some real work. Uh, but we've got in this April sitting, we've got immigration, some environmental law patents, a couple criminal cases. And the justices have two cases with free speech implications, one of the current court's favorite topics. So we're going to chat about one of those um, in this deep dive episode, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez. And at the end of the sitting, we'll do another deep dive on the other First Amendment case, affectionately known as the cursing cheerleader case. Yeah. Do you say cursing or cussing? Is this like a regional thing? I've never said cussing, unironically. Oh, right. You're from you're from New Jersey, so you just say like, cheerleader case. God well, it is a Third Circuit case, so <laughs> that would be the preferred nomenclature. Okay. Uh, first, though, the Supreme Court finally closed out its October sitting, handing down Google versus Oracle, uh, which was the last case from that sitting to be decided. This case has been called the biggest copyright case in a generation. Uh, and it sure seemed like Justice Breyer had fun writing this opinion. Jordan, you want to want to tell us about it? I do. So Oracle had accused Google of copyright infringement for copying its code in Google's Android operating system. And in a 6-2 opinion by Justice Breyer, as you mentioned, the court held that Google's copying of the Java code was allowed under the Fair Use Doctrine. Breyer noted that the copying was only lines of code that were needed to let programmers put their talents to work in a new and transformative program. So the ruling helps Google avoid what was potentially billions of dollars in damages sought by Oracle. Thomas and Alito dissented. Thomas's dissent criticized the majority for not deciding the question of whether the code was copyrightable in the first place. He said that approach skewed the analysis and led to the wrong result here. And this was an eight-justice decision because, as you mentioned, this was from October before Barrett was confirmed. So it wraps up a closely watched case in the tech world where both sides said a win for the other side would stifle innovation. We'll see who's right. The stakes were really high in that one. No, that one was interesting because it's been pending before the justices for a really long time. It was one of those cases that um, was supposed to be argued during last term, but got put off because of the coronavirus. And it wasn't one of the 10 cases that the justices decided to hear in that special May argument sitting and said they put it off to the next term. So I think it was because they wanted to mess with Google for touting it as the copyright case of the decade because then they made it go into the next decade. So it's confusing as to which decade you're talking about. <laughs> which decade? Speaking of Google and big tech. Yeah, this wasn't the only case where Thomas wrote separately this week, Kimberly. We finally brought an end to another long pending one, the Twitter case involving former President Trump's account. That's right. So this was a Second Circuit opinion, which found that former President Trump's Twitter feed was a, quote, public forum, and that blocking users from the feed ran afoul of the First Amendment. Other courts had held similarly um, with cases involving other public officials. Uh, but in this case, that was before the justices, you know, stuff happened, uh, like Donald Trump isn't a government official anymore. So the court sent the case back to the lower court with instructions to vacate the ruling below under a doctrine called Munsingware. Um, I wrote a story about it, so you all know about it, of course, because everyone read my Munsingware story, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, this is significant because it's not just the court saying there's no longer a live controversy, but it actually wipes out the adverse ruling below. So get to start fresh. Um, as you mentioned, though, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence, um, which he's been known to do, in which he highlighted that, quote, applying old doctrines to new digital platforms is rarely straightforward. Uh, true enough. Uh, so Thomas talks about how big tech has too much power over speech and in particular has too much power over the ability to cut off certain speech, um, pointing, of course, to Twitter's decision to kick off the former president uh, from its platform. And, you know, he says at some point uh, the Supreme Court is going to have to consider uh, whether existing doctrines can kind of rein in that power. Um, notably, nobody else joined his concurrence, which isn't to say that nobody agrees with him, but just they didn't note their agreement. Um, this is something I hope to touch on with our guest a little bit, but it implicates, you know, this national debate that we're having about cancel culture and really how to balance corporate power with our capitalistic ideals. And Thomas, at least, wants the court to get right in the middle of it. So we'll see if they will look out for some cases for them to do that. So before we bring on our guest, Kimberly, you want to tee up this case a little bit? Americans for Prosperity? So this case involves a California law that requires tax-exempt charities soliciting within the state to disclose their largest donors, um, something they point out they already do to the IRS, which requires this information. So the state argues that the law doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment free speech protections in part because it isn't disclosed to the public and it's only used for state oversight to police misuse of charitable funds. The charities themselves, though, and a whole host of their quote-unquote friends don't see it that way. So here to give us that side of the argument is our guest. Timothy Sandifer is the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, where he focuses on constitutional law, including cases on economic liberty, private property rights, and free speech. And free speech is at the heart of Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez, in which you filed an amicus brief. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into the facts of this particular case, let's step back and talk about uh, the court's precedent that it's going to be looking at um, in, in considering this case. And in particular, the NAACP case. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it fits into the arguments that the charities are making here? Yeah, the case you're talking about is uh, NAACP versus Alabama, but it was actually one of a series of cases in the 50s and 60s involving the degree to which the state can demand information from uh, people or organizations that are engaged in uh, speech or litigation or some kind of activism uh, on controversial issues. Of course, in, in that case, it was desegregation. It was the NAACP. And in the Alabama case particularly, the state was trying to force the NAACP to turn over information about its donors and supporters to the state. And of course, once this information became publicized, the result would have been harassment, intimidation, and threats against the people who supported the NAACP. In fact, uh, it's not widely known that the the uh, state managed to get an order in as part of this litigation that effectively shut down the NAACP in Alabama for several years before the Supreme Court took up this case and said that it was unconstitutional for the state to demand this kind of information. Hmm. So one of the things um, that the state leans on pretty, pretty heavily in in this 
litigation is the fact that this information is already required by the federal government. So how is it that disclosure of the same information can violate the First Amendment when it's given to one government entity but not to another? Well, the practice that California had been following previously was to require the entities to turn over IRS information to the Attorney General, the particularly forms that were filled out that included the information relating to these organizations, donors, and supporters. And they were allowed to turn over this information in a redacted form when it gave it to the state. So you were allowed to take a, a marker and black out this information and then give it to the Attorney General. And that had been allowed. And then what happened was the Attorney General said, no, you can't do that inf- anymore. You have to give it to us without redaction. And of course, you know, we promise you that we'll keep it secure, which of course they did not. A federal judge later found that you know, something like 2,000 instances of this information being posted on publicly accessible databases, which exposed those people to harassment and intimidation. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the public disclosure. And, and uh, you know, I think that everybody agrees that, you know, this information is confidential or is supposed to be confidential and it's not subject to public disclosure. But the Ninth Circuit, as you mentioned, noted that California has a bad track record on this. Um, But that wasn't in bad faith, right? It was human error that the court points out and the state has since fixed it. And, you know, one question that comes, you know, to my mind when I think about it is how closely do and should courts really second guess states on their commitment to following their own, own laws? Like, how much do we want judges really digging into this? Uh, very much so. Well, we, unfortunately, in today's world, the the fashionable vogue of judicial restraint has taken such hold that people think that courts should stand back and, and let the government essentially do what it pleases and what it thinks appropriate. I think that's completely wrong. I think judges owe an obligation to independently review these matters and to be skeptical of government's preferred excuses when it demands this information and when it then uh, illegally releases this information. You say it was in good faith. Well, that's what the court said. Uh, But 2,000 instances of violating this confidentiality after the state was repeatedly warned about the risks involved, you know, uh, I'll just leave it at that. I'm sure my daughter would have something to say about that since I just, you know, was on her today about when you choose not to do something, you're choosing, you're choosing it. So I get you there. Yeah. And, I take your and point. I'm sure also, <laughs> I'm also sure as a parent that you've warned your daughter that once information is on the internet, it is out there forever. It is never gone and it can always be looked up in the future. And this is a big concern that I don't think has been sufficiently addressed by the courts in this matter, which is People keep talking about the the risk of uh, harassment or threats against donors, but they keep talking about it today and ignoring the fact that the threat of harassment against these donors and supporters is indefinitely into the future. So if you were to donate to an organization today for some purpose that's relevant today, and then say 10 or 20 years into the future, that organization takes a position on a completely different matter that is considered to be, you know, outrageous, politically incorrect, whatever it might be. There are plenty of people out there who can find the information from your 20-year-old donation and go after you and harass you for that. They're not going to stop and ask, well, gosh, is this really relevant and so forth. So um, we've, we've got, in fact, uh, in the brief that we filed, we cite an example uh, the very famous example of Brendan Eich, the, the uh, CEO of Mozilla, was forced to uh, resign from his position. What was it? 
eight years, ten years after it was found that he had donated to uh, the the uh, same sex the anti same sex marriage initiative in California. So once this information gets publicized and put on the internet, it can never be taken down and it exposes people indefinitely to threats of intimidation and harassment. So the lesson here, folks, is never donate money to a charity ever, I think. (laughs) No, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of this balancing test um, and look a little bit at the state's interest. Um, But you've brought up, you know, the harm to the charities and to their donors. And I just wonder, you know, the the idea that information, you know, can lead to death threats or threats of physical harm. Obviously, that's something, you know, that could chill donations that we want to stop. But the charities here are making the point that there are, are often boycotts urging consumers and even government entities not to support these businesses that are associated with these charities. And it really fits kind of into this larger debate that we're having as a country over what some people call cancel culture. And, you know, I, I'm wondering how we should be thinking about people using their consumer power as harassment, especially in the context of courts going in and undoing, you know, a state law. Yeah, that's, I think that is a good question. And you're right that that is a more complicated question than the harassment issue. Uh, Because people have a First Amendment right to refuse to do business with an organization that they find, uh, you know, improper or inappropriate or donates money to causes they disagree with or, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with using publicly available information to make a choice like that. No, no question about that. Well, yeah, I was kind of wondering just because I actually wasn't familiar with the example that you mentioned, Tim, about the person who was fired. But and maybe there are more facts about this that make it sound worse than the initial description. But is that not just a private company taking an action or a person voluntarily taking an action based on stuff that they did? Oh, yes, absolutely it is. And um, my point in bringing up that example was not to say otherwise. It was to say that this information remains out there indefinitely. And that's a good good example of how things like this can come back at, at, at any date in the future to be a real threat of genuine harassment and threats. But in that particular instance, no, of course, if, it, if people want to refuse to do business with somebody because they find that person objectionable for political reasons or whatever, they are entirely within their rights to do that. So let's look at the other side of this kind of balancing test. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the harm, obviously some, you know, it's kind of on a spectrum. If you're getting death threats, bad, you know, a boycotts where, you know, we're a little more okay with that. But let's go to the other side, right? What is the state interest here, right? They say that they're trying to ferret out misuse of uh, money that's been donated by California residents. Why is that? I mean, do you think that that is a good policy for the state to get this information or why not? Well, I I think this is actually one of the most interesting parts of this case, although it's not quite as uh, headline grabbing as the harassment part of the case. And that is what kind of state interest is sufficient to justify a requirement like this. The state interest that the government put forward in this case and that the Ninth Circuit found was adequate was mere convenience, investigational convenience. It's just helpful for the state to have this information handy. They admit that they could get this information in other ways. They could subpoena these organizations. They could audit these organizations. They could find some kind of reason to believe they were engaged in wrongdoing and go after the information that way, and they would get it. Everybody admits that. But the state says, yeah, but it's just more convenient for you to turn it over in this other form. Well, the reason why that's important is because the standard of scrutiny that applies here, exacting scrutiny, 
requires an important or compelling government interest, not a merely legitimate government interest. And the courts, of course, have been very vague about what the differences are between legitimate government interests and compelling government interests and important and significant and blah, 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 as part of the total mess that, let's just be frank, the total mess that is standards of scrutiny. I mean, in 1987, on the 200th anniversary of the Constitution of the United States, the Supreme Court said in the Nolan case, quote, our cases have not laid out the standards for determining what is a legitimate government interest, end quote. If that's the case, what business does the court have even addressing whether something is rationally related to it or is, you know, narrowly tailored to it? If we don't know what a legitimate government interest is, then that's like having a map but no destination. It's totally ir- arbitrary and irrational. But anyway, that's the law we've, we're, we're dealt. So, you, you know, uh, this question about government interests, though, I think it's been it's what is clear to the extent that any of this is clear is that mere convenience is a legitimate government interest. But that's it. Only legitimate, not compelling, not important and therefore insufficient under the exacting scrutiny standard. And this case should be as simple as that. The court should say the state has not offered an interest here, has not even argued an interest here that would be, even if true, sufficient to justify the demand. And so, Tim, I think perhaps someone listening to the conversation to this point might get the impression that the dynamic in the case is sort of a kind of a right-leaning interest versus a liberal government sort of thing. But there's actually some a lot of cross amicus support against the government here, right? And so I'm wondering if you could talk about kind of what that cross interest is and what you see as the significance of that. Yeah. And in fact, if I remember correctly, the NAACP filed a brief in support of the petitioners in this case, in, in support of the nonprofits, uh, which I think helps put the lie to the claim on the other side that this case is radically different and that the the evil conservatives are are exploiting the NAACP case for purposes it wasn't intended for and so forth that you're you're starting to hear from from certain people on the other side. The cross appeal here is because everybody knows that there will come, or everybody sensible knows, that there will come a day when the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, when When it's, you know, the Republicans demanding information from Democratic organizations or whatever it might be. A while back, I was testifying here in the Arizona State Legislature on the subject of a donor privacy bill, and I kept mentioning um, uh, Planned Parenthood. I kept saying, well, you know, what about forcing supporters of Planned Parenthood to put their names on a publicly accessible government list? Are we comfortable with that? And after I used the example three or four times, a a certain liberal member of the legislature spoke up and said in a wry, sarcastic tone that he thought it was ironic to hear a a person from the Goldwater Institute speaking up so frequently in defense of the Planned Parenthood, uh, to which I responded that Peggy Goldwater founded the Phoenix Planned Parenthood Clinic. And so it's a good example of how these cross interests cannot be predicted into the future. And it's best for everybody's safety and freedom of speech if we just respect each other's privacy and leave each other alone, period. And so one of the amicus um, coming down uh, in favor of the charities uh, was the federal government, but now it's not. Uh, This is one of those cases where uh, the Biden administration has um, changed its position. How is that going to factor in uh, to the court's consideration at all? 
<laughs> well, I would like it if they would take that as an example of what I was just talking about, that the shoe gets on the other foot, and that's why we have a constitution to begin with. The purpose of the constitution is to protect us from politics. It's not to create a system of politics. As human beings interacting with one another, we automatically have a system of politics. The reason we have a constitution is to protect us against politics, to protect the rights of those who don't want to have their personal information, their phone numbers, their addresses, their employer's information, put on a publicly accessible government list as the price of, of speaking out in support of their beliefs. The, the, to allow politicians, this, the kind of power that we're talking about here is to allow the party that's, that you disagree with the power to do some really frightening and intimidating things to you. And that's bad for individual liberties and also, of course, bad for democracy. So um, just really quickly, um, you are involved in a different case involving a similar New Mexico law. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how these laws um, are, you know, whether or not there are other laws across the country that are similar to this? Yeah, so this is a case from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the facts are kind of fun because what happened was that the city had this ballot initiative to impose a sales tax on sugared soft drinks. You remember back before COVID when this was what we considered a hot political issue? So the, the city was considering this tax, and uh, uh, a friend of mine named Paul Guessing, who runs a small free market-oriented think tank in New Mexico called the Rio Grande Foundation, was opposed to this idea. And so they put, uh, the, first of all, he printed up $1,500 worth of postcards that he was going to send out to voters saying, hey, you should vote no, no on this. And then he posted on a Facebook page a video that some other organization had made opposing the sales tax. Well, Santa Fe has an ordinance that says if you spend uh, $250 on any side of a ballot initiative, you have to turn over to the government for placement on a publicly accessible government list the names and identification information of anybody who's donated to your organization for that purpose, even as little as a penny. So if you donated a single penny to the Rio Grande Foundation to oppose the soda tax, your information would have to be posted on a government list. And this, this again, this, uh, this is your address, your employer information, and so forth. So we sued and said that that violates the First Amendment. There are requirements that the Supreme Court has said are okay for compelling the disclosure of information about people who donate to political campaigns. But it's always been for people who are like major donors, right? The people who are really the sponsor of, of, this, uh, of this act, they're the people that get their names po posted. But in this Santa Fe case, you're talking, about not, you're talking about a penny. You're talking about people who support, not who sponsor. Also, the Supreme Court has limited these donor disclosure requirements to cases involving candidates running for office. They have never expanded it to apply to ballot initiatives. And when you're talking about ballot initiatives, you're talking about a very different thing because ballot initiatives aren't people, so they can't be bribed, you know. So the government's interest in requiring the disclosure is much more limited. Well, on that, uh, I think we will wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective on this case. Um, and given your amicus lineup and the love of the justices of free speech and everything in the First Amendment, probably sitting in a good position, right? <laughs> yeah, thank you. So it sounds like, you know, the California and New Mexico 
laws are, are quite different, I think. Um, but it sounds like it is an issue across the country. I mean, in the California one is not a public database. It doesn't require, you know, a whole bunch of information, just name and address. And it doesn't require, you know, everybody giving a penny um, to be disclosed. It's really just the largest donors. So I think in one of these cases, um, one of the charities that did disclose seven of its donors. So some differences, but, you know, still an issue that Supreme Court grappling with maybe again we'll see so we can talk about briar you want to talk about briar yeah briar i love to talk about briar uh he gave a speech recently at harvard it was a um long it was long it was a very long speech it was in parts there's an intermission you get like candy in between uh did anything stick out to you yes and no it was kind of part of the same canned stuff that he usually talks about mm-hmm. my ears started to perk up a little bit when he voluntarily on his own brought up court packing that was obviously not a topic that he had to bring up of course he wound up concluding essentially that it was not a good idea he basically wound up siding with the republican position under the guise of not wading into politics so i think the conclusion was pretty expected although kind of interesting that he brought it up and then at the very end, he announced that he was retiring. Oh, man, I should not have stopped listening. Actually, no, that's the only thing I was listening for. But um, he did not say that. Uh, so we're still on Briar Watch. No word yet if he will step down. Um, but some justices do it at the end of the term, like Justice Kennedy. Others do it at the end of arguments. So this year, that would be in May. Um Another thing I wanted to talk about, Jordan, before we wrap up here, did you see that? Uh, did you see that video that the judiciary put up on its Twitter page involving um, federal judge out of Texas, Reed O'Connor? I did. It was noteworthy. Although what he said wasn't particularly noteworthy, he just gave you know what we all learn in elementary school: like, ju- judges are not politicians, and if they have you know problems with policy, that's not you know the purview of the judiciary. Um, I know I'm not sure he was the right person to send that message, though. And to give context to this, we're talking about, and this is something that happens on both sides of the political divide, a judge shopping, for lack of a better term. But he's a judge who Republicans have specifically gone to this particular district in order to launch cases from there. Yeah, no, he's not the only one, right? Like it brings to mind Judge Reinhardt, right, who famously said he was going to not follow all the Supreme Court precedent because they, you know, taking the Pokemon approach they can't catch them all um so um since we are a supreme court podcast we should probably tie this to the supreme court but this is the judge who found that obamacare um, in its entirety must fall because of some changes that um republican-led uh congress made to the affordable care act um that's in front of the justices now looks after oral argument like they are not going um to go that way and probably will reverse that ruling Uh, Yeah, that's going to do it um, for this week. We'll be back next week with our sneak peek uh, as we kick off the April argument sitting. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see 
when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.